as a society, as a planet, we are living beyond our means. We have a finite amount of resources. You can break that down in terms of water, in terms of energy, in terms of the amounts of agriculture, arable land, how we can produce it. There's a whole variety of different dimensions you could look at. But essentially, the trajectory that we're going on, this constant growth, this constant need for more resources, people want to buy more, this consumerism, there's a finite limit to it. And we're reaching it rapidly. Mm -hmm. So in order for us to address that finite limit, we have to start changing everything that we do. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast about closing the strategy execution gap and promoting outcome-driven cultures. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. And inspired by the proven objectives and key results methodology, GTM Hub is the leading platform for strategy execution management for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. There is a bullet train headed towards global corporations, and it's called ESG. On this episode of Dreams with Deadlines, we hear from a geoscientist and consultant who has been sharing the latest on environmental, social, and governance standard setting. A PhD geologist, Catherine Dugan worked in the oil and gas industry prior to becoming, as she put it, part of the solution in her role as head of sustainability, financial services advisory at the global consulting firm, Grand Fork. She serves an influential roster of financial services institutions, advising them on best practices for instituting ESG programs that are substantial, robust, and forward-thinking. Here are a few of the things we talked about. Why progress on sustainability, a concept that's been around since the UN coined it in 1987, has been slow and time is running out. Ways in which environmental, social, and governance or ESG requirements can be designed to hold corporations accountable. How scientists are out there, especially in the oil and gas sectors, with deep expertise and nature-based solutions to climate change impacts. What it might be like if industry leaders pivoted their technology to become energy companies instead of oil and gas companies. And why large financial institutions are uniquely positioned to pressure corporations into reducing and mitigating against climate change-related impacts. We learn about the need for global regulatory standards, written in concert with corporations and accessible to consumers and investors. And finally, Catherine offers practical steps organizations can take to meet environmental reporting and data validation standards now and in the future. Let's jump in. I am super stoked because I have, I don't know, I met Catherine and we just instantly became like besties somehow. Mm-hmm. And now we're joined on this podcast. And I'm really excited. So buckle up. We're here for a ride today. But we're actually going to talk about something I think that is very important to society. We're going to talk about ESG. And yeah, Catherine's just going to just drop knowledge bombs left, right, and center about what this is, why it matters, why we need to pay attention, and what that means to us as people who are business leaders, but also citizens of the world, right? So Catherine, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit? And like, how did you get to be the head of sustainability at Grant Thornton? Because that journey seems like something most people don't wake up in college and think one day I'm going to be the head of sustainability. 
you know, even though this has been around for multiple decades now, but the term anyway, sustainability. So you're, yeah, you're so telling yeah. you're telling me, Jenny. I never, I definitely never, never saw this coming. And first of all, thanks so much for the invite. I have been very excited um, since I met you. And yeah, definitely. As as previously advised, we need to we need to do this in person. How much more fun is this going to be? <laughs> this is like the the prelude, and I feel like people might want to join us. <laughs> oh, for sure. I want to join us. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make that happen. Um, yeah, so sustainability and how does I get to where I am? First of all, it's huge, I would say, just the whole kind of topic. And um, we probably aren't going to cover everything um, today. So it's, it's okay to acknowledge that this, is, that this is big and scary. But maybe let me talk you through how I got to where I am. So I'm a geologist uh, by background. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. My first, um, my first lecture, I wanted to do geography, maybe a little bit. And the first lecture we had in geology, which you had to do because it was a kind of compulsory subject, was this six-foot blonde, gorgeous Californian guy talking about how, you know, we're all made of stardust and how, like, the Big Bang was the start of everything. And it just blew my mind. So geology was, was me from, from then on in. So, and geology is, is a... It's a really holistic subject. It's all about the earth, everything that's in it, how it's all interconnected. But it has this wonderful perspective of deep time. So you're talking about billions and billions of years. Mm. And what that gives you is when you look at kind of some of the things that we're dealing with in our, our own lives and our own kind of very small niches, it gives you that that concept and that, that appreciation that actually the earth is much bigger and much longer and has, has been around for eons more time than we can even comprehend. Mm. And so you can see those kind of big changes that are coming through. How that's related to kind of sustainability and how I got in there is I, I joined the oil industry. I love that because that's really kind of geologically based and you know, had a really great experience. Wonderful people, exciting projects, kind of teamwork and all that kind of thing. But very slowly, and I suppose over the course of maybe the last 15 years, kind of the, the major part that I, that I was in the oil industry, you know, this, this language of sustainability that's coming up, that kind of environmental piece, the damage that we're doing kind of long term, the, the impacts of climate change. And I suppose when we were growing up, you know, there was all about kind of recycling and that was kind of thing. It's, it's yes, very reduce, easy. reuse, recycle. Exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's what it was kind of all about. And it was, you know, maybe some of that kind of kids were quite involved with, but like this longer picture, the impacts of business, the impacts on our community, on society. I don't think that line was kind of drawn for, mm. for a very long time. Um, and I'd say probably over the last, the, the course of the last 10 years, maybe the discourse has really become very tangible. And I think probably the key thing that's happened is that it's, it's that interaction with kind of the financial impacts of sustainability and climate change. So with all this going on in the background, you start thinking about your own career and you're like, well, I love oil and gas. It's brilliant. Is it sustainable in the long term? Mm. Is it going to give me a career for the rest of my life? Is it something that I want to be involved with? Do Mm -hmm. I want to be part of the, for want of a better word, the problem? And there are, there are different, there are nuances involved in that conversation. Or do I want to be part of the solution? How can I educate people? How can I, you know, use my kind of geological background and knowledge and experience and also my experience of dealing with people who maybe are you know very heavily invested in the oil and gas industry and have like a you know it's going to take a lot for their mindset to shift how do you have those conversations and so through a course of a couple of different moves that's how I've ended up in Grand Thornton and particularly in financial services advisory because an awful lot of the the regulation that's focused on impacting the changes that need to happen in order for us to address the sustainable challenges will have to come through the financial sector. And essentially, the thing with sustainability is that it tries to describe the fact that as a society, as a planet, we are living beyond our means. We have a finite amount of resources. 
I mean, that's always, a quotable quote right there. Yeah, but and right. that, that is essentially it. We only have so much. And you can right. write that down in terms of water, in terms of energy, um, in terms of the amount of agriculture, you know, ag- arable land, how we can produce it. But all these different, you know, there's a whole variety of different dimensions you could look at. But essentially, the trajectory that we're going on, this constant growth, this constant need for more resources, people want to buy more, this consumerism, there's a finite limit to it. And we're reaching it rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in order for it to, us to address that finite limit, we have to start changing everything that we do. And the financial sector is really key to influencing that change. I couldn't agree more. I mean, what was interesting when I was doing a little bit of background research into this topic before today's recording, I was surprised to find out that this is multiple decades old, this term. Sustainability was defined by the United Nations in 1987, I think. Yeah. And then they defined it as development that meets the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. To your point, like if we're overspending now, then what does that mean for, you know, the generations that come after us? So maybe we can like back this train up a bit to talk about the terms, because this might be interesting for a lot of folks, because ESG is kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak. Like the corporate social responsibility kind of preceded it. Can you kind of talk us through what happened? Was it like a rebrand? What happened to get us to the point where we're now talking beyond like what happens with the environment? We're talking about what happens to humans. We're talking about what happens in terms of government governance for businesses. But there was something before. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah, so I think corporate social responsibility is, is probably a term a lot of people have heard with, particularly right. kind of in the 90s, it was quite big. Right. And, you know, in a crude way, you could describe it as writing big checks, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, how are you? Um, and it, it was, you know, traditionally, maybe it was owned by kind of the marketing department of, of a company. It was right. essentially kind of PR. It was doing good things. I'm sure there was a lot of kind of positive impacts to it, but it was almost a standalone piece mm-hmm. and it wasn't so much maybe integrated into um, the business risk or the business opportunity. And then there was a move kind of, I suppose there was an evolution of in, in the space that maybe went from kind of corporate social responsibility to maybe being a good corporate citizen. Right. So how do you, beyond just kind of writing these big checks and, you know, maybe doing a beach cleanup, which again, you know, are good and, and, and useful things to do. How do you maybe integrate the work that you're doing and the money that you're spending anyway with your own business and, and strategy? So maybe, you know, there are examples where companies kind of said, well, one of the things that's very important to our business is, for instance, water stress and, and water availability. So maybe we should focus our efforts in ensuring the security of water resources in a particular area that we're working in. How do we work with the community? So you're aligning some of the approaches to your own business risks and your own business opportunities. And so that became more, um, it, was, it was moving more in the direction of aligning it with your bottom line. And I think mm. that conversation of yeah, how do we integrate these two things? I think at the same time, then you also have a lot of um, stakeholder uh, pressure too, again, about corporate citizenship. I think the rise of social media has had a huge amount to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you've always had very effective NGOs, but now with social media, in particular causes and campaigns, you can see the vulnerability of large corporates if they are assessed as not doing what they should be doing. They're, they're not you know, practicing good behaviors. And so that now becomes an operational risk for them. So kind of embeds good good governance and good practice within their own business becomes very important for their reputation. That was kind of the CSO word, the kind of you know good corporate citizen. 
And then you sort of move into the financial space and this realm of ESG, so um, environmental, social and governance. And they're kind of three categories that would fall under the umbrella of sustainability, three different dimensions. I think it's important to note that you can look at a lot of the kind of, you know, the UN publications, the EU publications, and there's a huge amount of material that's written on this. There is yet to be an agreed definition of all of the categories that fall under environmental Isn't that wild? For how long, how long we've been having this conversation? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's still a a disconnect uh, between nations on what this should be and what the definitions should include and to what degree people should be held accountable to those ideals. That's an interesting note. So let's talk through then this, because I think this is the meat of probably a bulk of our conversation today, right? Is that now we're talking about businesses not only writing those big checks, but also now capitalism is actually winning. Yeah. The power of the consumer's purchasing power is now, you know, largely affecting a restructuring of business models to incorporate the triple bottom line. So the success of an enterprise now is not just solely financial profit. It now needs to take into consideration environmental stewardship, as you've discussed, as well as some amount of social equity which arguably you can categorize in the S and the G parts of ESG. Why is this an important topic now, though? Why is it pressing today? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good question. And like I said, maybe around 2015, that's probably the first time you had a lot of lines drawn in the sand, for want of a better word. So you had the UN Sustainable Development Goals um, and you had the Paris Climate Agreement. And something else that came out of that was a thing called TCFDs, the Task Force for Financial Disclosures. And this was about getting companies to understand the exposure, particularly when it came to climate change, but the, the kind of whole process lends itself to, to other areas of, of ESG as well. So tell me how your business is vulnerable because of these elements. They tell actually had to start reporting at that time. Exactly. Now, right. this was a voluntary approach, but what we're seeing now, we're kind of moving into maybe maybe the last decade or two was, was about discussion, it was about um, aspiration, it was about targets. This is now the decade of change. This mm. is the negative action. It has to be for a couple of different reasons, because you've seen the regulation piece coming on. Right. But essentially, a lot of this is linked to climate change. Sustainability is broad. ESG is broad. The most pressing impact we have right now is climate change. And if we don't make critical changes to our business to reducing the amount of carbon emissions in our environment, in the industries, in our economies by 2030, we are going to be faced with a world of trouble that we, I don't really think we can comprehend. The, the impacts that it's going to have on every part of our lives and every part of society, every part of, of the economy. And at a really fundamental level, the cost of fixing things now, of making changes now, is going to be a lot less than having to deal with the impacts if we don't. So even if you don't really care about sustainability, even if you don't really care about climate change, if you're just looking at it from a financial level, you have to spend the money now in order to protect investments in the future. And so 2030 is a key deadline. And so an awful lot of these policies that the EU are developing, again, the UN Development Goals have a deadline of 2030. And Climate Paris Agreement has a key marker in 2030. So everything is kind of driving towards that. We've had maybe two years of a pause because of COVID. Right. We're now in 2022. We've got eight years. And we to recover. Really see, yeah, but we really see like an increase in the pace of change. And so that's what's driving a lot of businesses, stakeholders, NGOs, regulators, everybody to kind of 
look at this deadline and say we need to kind of crack on so that's why I think you're seeing it a much broader discussion maybe than we, than we have before maybe mm-hmm. seeing the impacts that are that are touching different parts of business that maybe in the past traditionally wouldn't have considered themselves exposed to sustainability or even considered the topic at all. Well, maybe we can like delve into your bread and butter, the oil and gas industry and carbon emissions. Mm. Part of the struggle, I, I think, I don't know, maybe you can validate this in wanting to make this change is really considering this ROI. Like, what are they going to do to innovate beyond an industry that has existed for a very long time that has really relied on oil and gas continues to. I mean, we're seeing the impacts presently with what's happening in Eastern Europe and, you know, the upper parts of Europe, people who are in the know would know. And that's really affecting the supply chain. And there's a lot of concern around, we're not ready to make the switch. Mm -hmm. We don't have the innovation to make the switch. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a bit about how this is impacting businesses that are either directly in the oil and gas industry or subsequently might be in transportation or things that are reliant upon these precious resources that are finite and we can only frack so much kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, I think in terms of the oil and gas industry, it really depends on a couple of different lenses that you look at. I think there's a short-term and long-term lens, and there's also the size of the the company that you're dealing with. So in a short term, there is no doubt like the oil prices are, are reaching levels that I think probably most people thought we were never going to see again. Right. So that kind of short-term demand is totally changing, you know, oil companies' approach because there's an opportunity there to make hay while the sun shines, um, regardless of kind of the long-term implications. And, you know, from, from a fiduciary point of view, what are you going to do? You're going to just turn on the taps and, and try and make as much money as you can in the short term. In the long term, I don't think that's a viable solution because this concept of the inevitable policy shift where there will have to be regulation terms or or something will have to say we cannot afford to continue to pump this oil to continue to use it because of the implications of the wider world. So on a longer term, companies will have to consider their strategy. And some of the things they can do, some of the larger companies in particular, the people who work for oil and gas companies are a huge, diverse range of people. You know, there's geologists, there's earth scientists, there's engineers who have a vast, you know, array of experience and knowledge of and skills that can be used to help in the transition. And one of the things that I think is really interesting, and the feasibility is still being looked at, but I've had colleagues who've been looking at this for 15 years in terms of like their PhDs when we were in college, and we're like, what, what is this? But the idea of taking a reservoir that has in the past held oil and gas, so you know that it seals, you know that it's a, it's, yeah. you understand the capacity of it, but you can use that to then re-inject CO2 in there. So essentially kind of undo the bad that was done by the oil industry and leveraging those kind of nature-based solutions to how you can particularly take geology in those reservoirs and use that now to store the CO2 extracted from the the concepts of that are are huge even in terms of wind farms offshore wind farms there's a huge amount of infrastructure there and industry experience in terms of building platforms that have survived you can't even imagine some of of the wind and the extreme conditions that these have had to survive in you know the, the North Atlantic and some of the most challenging environments on earth how do you turn that kind of engineering expertise into wind farms into Mm. All those kind of technical solutions. So there's a point there as to how you get that kind of technical expertise and get oil companies to pivot in that direction. And rather than maybe becoming oil and gas companies, they become energy companies. So how that kind of language. Now that takes monumental shifts. That takes bravery. That takes moving from a guaranteed income source to something that's new. Yeah. Yeah. 
and scary and there's risks associated with it. And that's definitely a concern. I think the other side of it is those smaller companies that they're never going to have the resources to do that. But there is always going to be need for maybe smaller fields that larger companies are pulling out of because it's not it's not feasible. It doesn't match with their long-term kind of strategy. So you have smaller companies who will say, we're only going to be around for like the next five to eight years. So we have a short-term plan maybe where we come in and just kind of sweep up those smaller fields. We'll extract as much as we can out of it. And then, I don't know retires the Bahamas you know so it's there are different kind of perspectives and I think it's important to kind of you know recognize the needs for all that but frankly as you say we are not ready for the transition right now there is going to be like a phase out mm. so there will be a need for some time for those kind of resources and somebody will fill, fill that niche for sure. So we've talked about oil and gas we've talked about the environment Maybe we can start talking about the regulation, like mm-hmm. really immediate, exciting stuff that's yeah, happening. Yeah, I mean, it keeps me up at night. Let's, I, mean, you, like. is, I don't know about you. This is what I really enjoy. But I, I think it's really interesting, though, because when before getting into this topic, I had no idea just how many definitions, how big this thing is. Mm-hmm. When I was reading through Bloomberg, I think I saw their research and they said in a few years time, about one third of the world's assets under management will be tied up in ESG. Mm-hmm. So this is very much to do with the money, which makes sense why, you know, when you're talking about the intersection of your kind of uh, professional hats, this is what you speak to. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in terms of financing and what's happening in terms of the assets under management and how this is being perceived? Because, I mean, there are even grades that these companies can be given based on their level of whatever sustainability metrics they're going to target, from my understanding. I think also they can get favorable financing as a result of all of this stuff. So pressures are coming from all sides now for them to behave different. Can you talk a bit about that intersection? Yeah, absolutely. And I think fundamentally it comes down to if you want to make a change, follow the money. Like right. that is essentially, I think that's, that is a light bulb moment that has happened over the last couple of years. And you can see the tangible impacts um, already. So in terms of the regulation and how it's kind of approaching this, there's a couple of different strands um, and a couple of different motivations. So one from a financial, from a say the European Central Bank, one of their concerns is if you have a bank that's overexposed to sectors that are very vulnerable to climate change, if they don't address that exposure, there is the potential for, for bad debts and ultimately another financial crisis as a result of overexposure to bad ESG sectors and, and particularly ones that are, that are affected by climate change. So it's in their interest for banks to understand the risks they're exposed to um, and to recognise them and, and mitigate them. The other side of things is not only do you want banks to not be exposed to this, the other thing what you really want them to do is you want them to start investing in green products, in what's going to help the transition, in what's going to help society, in what's going to improve the lot and help us achieve those 2030 goals and those 2050 goals. So that's the other purpose of the regulation. One of the drivers around that is disclosures. So getting banks to disclose their exposures, getting companies to disclose their exposures. And there's lots of different, you know, if you're an asset manager, there's a thing called the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. If you're a corporate, there's the development of the the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. These are all EU-based. 
and there's a whole other range of you know methods and different kind of elements and, and banking and um, disclosures too. Um, the important thing though is that although this is EU based, I think the EU almost views regulation as their superpower. This is how they can change the world, and they're not wrong. The amount of work that they're putting into this type of regulation, you can see other countries, other jurisdictions looking towards it as kind of the benchmark. How do they adopt it? How do they build on it? How do they change it? So this regulation is driving some of these disclosures. Once you start disclosing things, then investors, stakeholders start looking at this information. They start asking questions. Is this, okay, well, this is a particular fund. It has a poor rating, as you say. So we have rating agencies that can rate funds that do. They rate funds, they rate corporates. Then you start thinking, is this where I want to invest my money? Does this align with my values? If climate change and having a positive impact on the world is important to me, well, maybe I'm going to change the choices of where I invest my pension. Um, mm. And then that starts kind of manoeuvring money in the opposite direction. And the other thing that you touched on as well is because you will have banks who will want to reduce their exposure to bad sectors and increase their exposure to green um, sectors. What we're seeing now is the development of green products, of green credit. And exactly as you're, as you're saying, if you're, for instance, funding a, a housing development, if you can in- encourage the developers to install more environmentally friendly, more sustainable solutions and products and employ better techniques, and you say to them, well, if you do that, we'll give you a reduced interest rate. Well, now you're influencing the real economy. And actually, I had a, a colleague was telling me that he's been frustrated for years that actually, if you want to change things, forget about the regulation. While it's useful and helpful, what you want to do is kind of influence the banks, influence the financing sector. That's how change can happen much more quickly than just by regulating, having things kind of pushed through parliament, having very specific and very restrictive laws. If you can kind of just nudge people in a particular direction, the impacts that you can have can be much greater and much faster. And we are definitely seeing the, the impacts now. And then you start, like even even in terms of like a, a residential you know, housing stock is a high rated energy building like a, with a high, we, we call them BEO ratings um, in Ireland, if you have an A-rated building, ultimately that's going to be worth more than maybe a C or a D-rated building. Your energy costs are going to be lower. It's going to be more efficient in terms of the emissions that you're producing. Again, does that align with your values? Is that important to you? And as the kind of population that are buying houses will become younger and younger, and you know that, mm-hmm. that population now that are concerned, when they start to buy houses, these are the things that they're going to consider. consider yeah. So you can see all those different elements feeding into people's behaviours. And it's, it's it's kind of that nudge, you know, through some regulation, through expectations, but it's hopefully starting to have an impact on the real economy. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's like putting pressures on the side of the financing kind of makes sense where perhaps it'll be a little slower on the government side, the regulatory side. Nevertheless, though, and we, you've mentioned a few things before to me, how are organizations supposed to make sense of all of the alphabet soups of the different definitions Right. Of what it is that they're going to disclose, whether it's SASB, TCFD, GRI, gets really complicated. It's hugely complicated. And it's not it's not accessible. It doesn't help people. It's not clear. It's not accessible. They're trying to do it. And then you have these grading schemas that exist so that you can appear to look favorable on this index versus that index. How is a business supposed to make sense of this stuff? And I think this is where you're getting it. This is where the government and the regulation can come into play. Is that right? Absolutely. So I would say all of this is is based on data. So it's it's a huge amount of how we interact, how we measure companies, how rating agencies design, um, you know, ratings to particular companies or assets um, management funds is all about data. And there's a huge move now to help improve the quality of the data. 
So for a long time, there were some really good voluntary initiatives, like you mentioned, GRI, SASB, CDP. We could go on and on. There's um, a lot. But people will, people will switch off, so let's not do that. <laughs> um, but the important thing is that like, they, were all, they were all trying to do different things, but they were all good initiatives. But it was very difficult for people to compare one to the other. Right. If you had one company that published under one framework, somebody else used a different framework, how do you compare? So there has been a really strong drive, particularly in the EU, under this corporate sustainability reporting directive to come up with a European set of standards. So European sustainability standards that companies will be obliged to. So rather than having to choose and just on a voluntary basis, they will now be obliged to use a particular set of standards and they will have to report against them. And that data will have to be audited. There are three kind of new big steps. What the EU are, are consciously doing, which I think is, is a really sensible move, is they have aligned themselves to existing these existing voluntary initiatives. So they're trying to take the best of what already exists, enhance it, integrate it, and, th- and then produce standards that companies can use. So if you're a company, what well, we are advising clients, and I think there's, there's two asks that, that clients have. First of all, tell me what I need to do. Because as you say, it's so complicated. It's changing so fast. Some of this regulation is in draft form. And we're seeing a lot of kind of edits to it. I mean, it's good. The one thing you say about the EU is they're very transparent. So you can see all of the kind of steps that are happening. So you can kind of get familiar and you can kind of keep up safe as to how those, how those standards are developing. But in the meantime, look to the best practice. Look to the kind of voluntary initiatives like SASB, like science-based targets, like TCFD. They're the ones that the EU are calling out anyway and saying, we are going to use this as a basis. So mm. if you can get your headspace around those ones, and the ones particularly that the EU have called out, you're going to be in a better position to report um, against the standards when they do get developed. The other thing I would say is that's very obviously a Euro focus view. We also have um, IFRS. They're in the process of developing their own standards as well. So they've set up the ISSB, which is the International Sustainability Standards Board. Again, they're trying to do a similar kind of thing. So lots of different reporting standards, frameworks, um, initiatives you can use. They're trying to create an aligned standard too. Now, the good news is that the EU and IFRS are speaking to each other. They're acknowledging each other's efforts. Will the final product be exactly the same? I'm not 100% sure. Will you have a company that maybe has to report against both of them? Probably. Mm. But think of the difference maybe in like three or four years time where hopefully you've got two standards that you have to report against versus maybe 10, 15 plus that right now, if you want it to be best practice, you might be reporting against all of them. So that kind of alignment is a really important step in the journey that's going to help stakeholders. It's going to help companies themselves trying to report on it because you can imagine the efforts that it takes to try and cover all of these kind of different things. If you can say, here's one thing, get your head around that. I think that that will help companies on their journey. Well, I'll ask you one more question before we do some quick fire. This yeah. is my favorite end, way to end. Well, you didn't show. tell me about quick fire. I didn't sign up for quick fire. Oh, yeah, you did. You said yes to the show, you did. The last question is, so for an organization that's getting into this, because maybe they were not familiar or... They're just now waking up to the fact that there's going to be some changes in Europe that may impact them, even in the United States, because I think I read somewhere, if you have an EU subsidiary as a global company, then you're going to have to also do some data disclosures there. So that's going to impact you as well, even though you're a United States company. What are some practical steps for organizations that are trying to get prepared for the inevitable, which is to some degree... having to disclose and provide robust reporting and validated data 
to ensure that they can secure that good financing, that they can get higher ratings via these indices, all of this stuff. I imagine some of them are well on their way, but you advise these companies. Where do they even begin? Yeah, I think if you know nothing about this, I think overwhelming is not is not the wrong word to use because right. it's huge. And you know, if you do a Google search, you're just like, where do I start? I think one of the most important things I would say to people is you need proper ownership of this. And you see a kind of whole range. And it's sometimes it's just a lack of awareness, lack of understanding. You can see clients where this is owned by the CEO because they recognize how important this is. There's the disclosure piece in the data, but the importance of this in terms of strategy and the resilience of their business going forward versus that kind of traditional view of this is CSO or marketing. We've seen other people who, it might be the head of HR who resigned to this and maybe they're told like, or compliance because it's a regulation piece and saying, take 10% of your time. And it's, I think the most important thing to recognize is that while disclosures may be the end game, disclosures are the end of the process. So these disclosures talk about what's your governance how is sustainability integrated into your strategy? What are the risks and opportunities you're aware of? And the final bit, and what are you doing about that? And the final piece in the, in the jigsaw is the disclosures piece. But be conscious of all of the other steps that have to come beforehand. And I think the other challenging things are the ownership piece. You know, investing some resources into this. This is not, this is not something that somebody can do at the side of their desk. They need to, whether that's getting external support with it or assigning somebody, you know, a significant amount of their time to address this issue. But the other thing is they need to have the authority or at least the influence to be able to touch different parts of the business, because this is not just about compliance. This is going to affect, particularly in a financial institution, it's risk management, it's product development, it's three lines of defense, it's internal audits, it's governance structures, it's, you know, it's. It's it the touches all parts of the it business. It really does. It's, and mm. I, it's hard to think of another kind of piece of regulation or another topic like this that has such a broad reach mm. and requires buy-in from everybody. And that's challenging, right? People have got full-time jobs. You know, I've got a full list of stuff. I don't need you asking me questions about sea level rise. Like, it's not my gig. But it kind of is. And it's kind of bringing people on that journey. I think the other bit is to not, obviously, I think maybe traditionally maybe we're you could focus on the risks and the challenges and the difficulties. There's a huge amount of opportunity that comes from this too. Do this right. You become mm-hmm. a market leader. You access you know, opportunities that other people haven't because they're still trying to figure out what this is. There's a huge amount of money at play in terms of the investment that needs to take place to reach these 2030 goals. So how do you set yourself up to support that and be part of that investment journey? And when you're trying to work out the kind of resources involved, that's an important piece of the puzzle too, I think. I think great pieces of advice. Ultimately, I feel like the lesson or the takeaway is do not take this lightheartedly for sure. This is not take Um, the box. This is not take the box. Right. And for some organizations, maybe ticking the box is their end game, just trying to maintain compliance. But the long game, I think the summary, at least I'm taking away from listening to you today is this is going to affect us today and in the future. And we really need to be thoughtful about what it is that we are doing to get that triple bottom line where we need to be caring not only about the financial gains that we can have, because certainly there probably will be via the innovation that we'll probably see, but also what we're doing in terms of just being better humans overall to other humans, being good to the planet, right? Being good to the planet that we live on and making sure that people in power are kept in check because that's kind of what all of these things are supposed to be Mm -hmm. about in service of 
I think, just up-leveling across the board. And that's, that's right. that is no small order. And I think it makes sense why it would be so difficult to try to put a definition on that that's standardized, not only within certain geographies, but globally, because I think that is certainly a movement that I'm seeing, at least from the SEC in the United States. They have a task force that they've created. I think they're talking to the EU and they're trying to figure out, can we have a global definition in the same way we saw what happened with GDPR, where they thought, oh, that's a European thing. And then all of a sudden- Everyone exactly. had to be compliant yeah. to GDPR, right? It's going to happen again, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to go into quickfire. This is one of my I'm sorry. I think my do. connection is breaking you down. Jenny. You got this, Catherine. It's going to be good. So the first question is usually the hardest, I think, but you can answer it any way you want. Yeah. What's, your, what's your dream? Because that's the name of my show, Dreams with Deadlines. Like, what's your dream? Oh, wow. What's my dream? I want everyone to get along. Is that terrible? Like just, just for all us to like all be pulling in the right direction. I think there's nothing greater than kind of working in a team and delivering something that you go at the end, wow, that was hard work, but that was brilliant. And I'm so proud. And you look around at all the people, you're like, I'm so proud we did this together. And I feel like this whole sustainability journey, some days you're like, this is too big for one person. And it is, it's too big for one organization. We have to do this together. And some days I get like, you can get depressed, you can get scared about this, but you look at COVID and you see the things, the great things that we're done when people are like, we just need to get this done. We need to figure out how to do it. And I think if you can apply that kind of same mindset to sustainability, if the penny suddenly drops, you're like, we are in this together. We've got one planless. We got to like figure this out. There's huge potential there. I would love to see that happen, but. Yeah, we can execute <laughs> on plan A. Like, yeah, right. Plan, plan B is something that I don't, I mean, maybe we can terraform another planet. Yeah. But- Let's try to go with plan A. I think I like this one. You know, I'm not a massive traveler, you know, like a bit of a home bird. quite like to fix this one. Like that's, that's not break it. Like it's not broken completely. Yeah. Same, same. So <laughs> second question is, what do you like about your team, about working at Grant Thornton with your team in particular? What's so awesome about them? I think what I love, and it's something that I loved in the audience too, and I was afraid that I wouldn't find this when I when I left, is working with lots of different people who have completely different points of view and expertise. Like I remember when I first joined, because I obviously were the huge amount of financial kind of experts and and mathematicians, and and they mentioned like long term, and like long term in the banking sector is eighteen months, long term in a geological perspective is billions of years. And just that kind of conversation of, you know, we're speaking completely different languages, but then when you suddenly see their point of view, you can feel like a part of your brain opening that you mm-hmm. hadn't used before. And you're like, we could figure out, if we could talk together. And honest to God, that's like sustainability. No more than it's not one company can do it, not one discipline can do it. We all need to kind of speak that other. So when you have those moments when you suddenly like understand each other, you're like, that's, that's kind of exciting. I enjoy that. But some days you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like an extra from The Apprentice. And I'm honestly like, I'm done. (laughs) That happened to me yesterday. I kid you not. I opened up a document. I read through it. And I was like, can you explain these words to me? Just these words. These acronyms would be helpful. And they're like, oh, of course. And that's like, thank you. Yeah, I I have those moments too. I think we all do. And then the the last question, which I think is relevant for you, because you get to talk to so many of these leaders who are thinking through this and working through, you know, how are they going to respond? What are their top challenges? What would you say is kind of the top challenges of these C-level or whoever is the owner 
of this idea for their organization? What are they facing? So I think the first thing is their own experience and knowledge. They kind of have to upskill, which again is, you know, in an area that's, that's kind of new to them. So kind of getting their heads around is the first thing. I think bringing their stakeholders with them, their shareholders in particular, Again, depending on kind of the industry that you have, you might have people who are very much focused on these kind of short term returns and trying to change that conversation to actually, you know, this is a longer term process is not naturally how, you know, that kind of shareholder return works. It's, you know, it's they want traditionally, you know, highest returns as fast as they can. So having to have that kind of grown up conversation uh, too. And I think just trying to cope with the pace of it as well. Mm. the pace of regulation change yeah it should not be underestimated and it's a challenge for them for sure but again we've done great things before these these great things can be done um it just it, it it takes hard work and i think i think really strong direction strong leadership and saying if we get over this hurdle look at what look at the future the great future that could await us that we could all be part of and we could all help kind of contribute and build to but some days when you need even regulation you're like no I can't see (laughs) I'm in the trenches (laughs) pull me out someone (laughs) this is a team sport Jenny team sport you need you need people to do that it's like no come on be all right be all right (laughs) well Catherine I think hopefully uh, I don't know about our listeners I could speak for myself I've learned so much listening to you today thank you so much for being on the show and just sharing your vast wisdom about what's happening, why we need to make changes and what we could do about it. This has been epic. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure, Danny. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you like today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.